Amen. Good morning. So, don't do it this week. Uh, I love new sermon series. They're like new presents under the Christmas tree. Uh, I get to open... Oh, man. All right, I guess the microphone doesn't like me either. That means I'm going to have to stay put if you guys are going to hear me. It's going to be hard. I know, I know. All right, back to my Christmas present illustration. Uh, I love new, you know, new, new sermon series because that means new commentaries and uh, get to open new toys, and uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So just to tell you what we're going to do this morning, we're going to do every father's job on uh, Christmas morning. The kids get to open up the new presents. The fathers have to read the instructions and figure out how the thing works. Um, and so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to read the instructions. We're going to um, know how to use our new toy, our, our new book, before we, we uh, get into the meat of it. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Uh, and so we're, we are beginning our series in Samuel. Uh, and so just so you know, in the Hebrew tradition, Samuel is one book. And so, um, and as the slide shows, uh, thanks Ben for putting the, that graphic together. And um, we're going to be focusing on the life of David. So if you read 1 Samuel, David doesn't appear until chapter 16. However, um, I want to bring us up to speed. And so um, in order to understand David and the significance of David, we need to understand the two men who prepare the way for David. So the first 15 chapters of the book are split up pretty evenly between the life of Samuel and the life of Saul. And so this week, we're going to look at the life of Samuel as kind of a character sketch and an overview. And then next week, we're going to look at the life of Saul as a character sketch and an overview. Um, and then we will slow down, and um, we will go through uh, verse by verse, chapter by, by chapter, and look at the life of David. So um, there is a uh, plan here. And so if you're in 1 Samuel, go back to Ruth. Um, we're going to keep referencing Ruth, but we're actually picking up where Ruth left off. And so Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. And the woman, um, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed, and he was, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this is intentional, that we're going from Ruth to 1 Samuel so that we can set up the life of David. Um, and we're tracing the people and events and the genealogy of Jesus which will, out, which will eventually lead us to Matthew's gospel, which begins with the genealogy of Christ. And so um, we're going to be looking back and looking forward as we go. Um, but until then, as we look at David, we're looking at David because as a man and as a, a king, he is a type. He is a shadow. Um, he has elements of the Christ, the king that is to come, but he ultimately is not the one that we look to. And that Christ, the anti-type, the, uh, theologically we, we speak of a, a type is kind of like a shadow. Where um, if you're sitting around the corner and you see my shadow, the shadow tells you that I'm coming, but the shadow is not me. And so David tells you that someone else is coming, he's, he's a type, but there's an anti-type. There is a one who is coming, who, will, who David slightly resembles, but the person who comes around the corner is so much better than the shadow. And, and, and that's what we're going to be doing. And so, but David is so closely associated with the life and the identity of, of Israel. Um, that when Jesus comes and he's born in the town of Bethlehem and he's born in the tribe of Judah, they call him son of David. His, his heritage comes through David. And so uh, to understand the expectation and the fulfillment of Christ, we do need to understand David. And so I'm looking forward to, to uh, getting uh, into all of that. Um, and so, yeah, so this week and next week, um, we are going to get into Samuel and uh, Saul. So this week, Samuel, the uh, prophet and judge, how he points to Christ um, and prepares the way for David and Saul as he, as king, um, points to David and is kind of a foil uh, for David and for Christ. Uh, it's not a good thing. Uh, but before we get into 1 Samuel, I want us to be familiar with Israel's history. Uh, so let's turn, turn to the book of Deuteronomy. If you're in Samuel, just go back a couple books. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is um, after Israel sins and the Ten Commandments are broken 
and uh, the Lord reissues them to Israel and uh, hands them to Moses. He, he rereads the law a second time. He gives them the uh, reminders of obedience, uh, but then also calls them to an internal transformation, to, um, to circumcise their, their hearts, not just to be outwardly obedient, but be inwardly obedient. But because they are, they are people, and like we are people, we need rules, we need expectations. How do we do this? How do we handle this? And so there's actually a lot in the book of Deuteronomy dealing with the judges. Uh, so I want to pick up in chapter 1, and this will help set the stage uh, for Samuel's role here. Deuteronomy chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 9. Um, if you've gone through our membership class, if you were in our membership class on Wednesday, uh, we talked about Exodus 18 and how Moses is exhausted. Moses is the first prophet and the first judge, and he's exhausted because he's having to make all of these decisions for all of Israel, and he needs faithful men, and so he puts leaders in place. Um, and so now we're kind of picking up because Moses has put this thing before the people. Now he's giving some expectation to the people and to the judges over the people. Um, so we're now caught up in Israel's history. Verse 9. At that time, this is Moses speaking. Now I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you. And behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. And that just hit me. It's kind of how it feels at Grace Fellowship sometimes. Uh, the Lord ha has multiplied you, and I don't think I can do it by myself. So I am thankful uh, for Brett and Jesse and for our deacons and continue to pray for your elders and for God to raise up leaders. Um, verse 11. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, this is how my mind works, sorry, uh, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you. Not too quickly, Lord. As he has promised you. How can I bear, bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as, their head, as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them over, set them as heads over you, uh, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and between his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me, and I will hear it. And, com and I command um, you at that time all the things that you should do. So, what is a judge in the life of Israel? Notice the things that you see here. Wise, understanding, experienced men as heads of families, as heads of clans. Men who exercise godly judgment. So when we think of judge, we think of someone who holds a legal office, a lawyer who has um, practiced, and lawyers are still practicing, uh, their uh, craft for, so, for long enough to where they can be um, put in a uh, bench and put on, a, put on a robe. And it's usually not a good thing if you have to go before a judge. Um, this is a little different in the life of Israel. So the Hebrew word and the Greek word for, uh, for, for judge or judgment, it just means to decide. And so instead of being this um, legal authority that is uh, apart from the people, they are a, a civil authority among brothers. It, it's, it's like having a wise older brother. You know, when, when, when two of your siblings are, are, are fighting and, you know, the, the, older, the, the older sibling has to be hopefully the voice of reason and, and kind of settle everything down, that's what a judge was. Someone who could make decisions for the people of God and decisions that were uh, wise and that were helpful for everyone. So they're more civil peacemaker than they are legal professional. Um, and so God institutes this. He, he puts them in place. And so in chapter 17, he gives further wisdom on the direction for the judges. So turn to chapter 17 for me. Chapter 17, verse 8. If any case arises requiring, I still hear pages flipping, I'll give you a second. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your town that should be too difficult for you, uh, then you shall arise and go before the place that the Lord your God will choose. 
And you shall come to the, Le- Le- the Levitical priests, that's a lot of L's, um, and to the judge who is in the office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from the place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or for the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Um, so we kind of we're, we're seeing this uh, pattern here that judges had this authority carry out decisions, um, to carry out punishment. And just like we mentioned in our membership class, looking at Exodus 18, um, this kind of uh, points us to Christ as, of course, as the, the, the ultimate judge and the one who rightly decides, but it also kind of prefigures pastoral ministry. You know, wise men and, and uh, authority that is, that is good to you and that you're you know, re- required to um, submit to. And so there's a responsibility from the men um, and from the uh, people, the congregation uh, as, as well. Um, but here's the problem with judges. They're human, and they're subject to error, and they're subject to mistake, and they're subject to overreach, and they're subject to abuse. Hence, the book of the judges. Uh, overall, the judges don't fare well for, for Israel. Um, and so Samuel, the uh, prophet, he is at the end of that age. So Moses is dead. Moses, the first judge, is long dead. Um, There is no king at the time, so we're still in this in-between period, and Samuel is the last of the judges. Samuel is trained under Eli, who also is a priest and a judge. But Israel would not be very content with Samuel and his leadership for long, and so they would want a king like the nations. That will be the title of our sermon next week, Saul, a king like the nations. And so... um, Just like uh, human judges are appointed for a time and for a purpose, it is always God's judgment that should stand. And so what shouldn't surprise us is throughout the entire Old Testament, it is God who is pictured as the righteous judge. It is God who is depicted as having perfect decision-making. It is God who decides for his people and for the nations. I just want to give you a few examples. Uh, We saw it in Hannah's prayer earlier. When she praises the Lord for his judgment, here's what she says at the end of, uh, this is 1 Samuel 2, 9 and 10. He, the Lord, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Uh, Psalm 96 this is, this is something to rejoice in. He, the judge is not a, a negative fixture uh, or depiction in the Old Testament, especially when it's the Lord. Judges are, are, are good things, especially when your judge is, is Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 96, verse 11, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees uh, of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. The prophet Micah, uh, as many of the uh, prophets do, they challenge the wicked acts of the people and they look forward to the Messiah who is to come. And so in Micah chapter 4, Um, If you're not familiar with uh, Micah chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, he is condemning the judges of Israel. He's saying um, that it is uh, blood and iniquity that's on their hands, that they uh, take bribes and they teach for a a price, and um, they are are greedy. Um, And people would ask, is the Lord even in the midst of us? Um, And so... In contrast to the wicked judges, the wicked teachers, the wicked leaders that were in Israel, there's a promise of a time that will come for a righteous judge and a righteous leader. Here's what he says. This is chapter 4, 1 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they lean or learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. For all the peoples uh, walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That is a picture of the Messiah and his kingdom that is to come. So let's pray, and then we'll get into 1 Samuel. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this time together this morning. It is always a privilege and a blessing to gather with the saints. We thank you for your wonderful design that you have set apart one day in seven, which is the Lord's day, that we would be refreshed and rested in you physically, but more importantly, spiritually, that we would be reminded that we can indeed rest in our Savior. It is on this day that our Savior rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death and all of our enemies. And it is him that we remember, him that we glorify. And as we read the scriptures this morning, Lord, help us to read the scriptures as Jesus read them. Lord, would we see that all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms point to him. And that we, as we see shadows of these earthly offices, let us look to Christ and his glorious office, prophet, priest, king, and judge. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, um, so I'm going to do a brief overview of the first seven chapters. So if you've got your scripture journals, you can just put a couple notes down. But I encourage you to read through this throughout the week. Families, this is a great, um, this is a great opportunity to read through one, one chapter um, every day this, this week. And there's so many great lessons. We'll get to some of those at the end. Uh, but I just want to give you high notes, and I'll give you a, a few things to kind of write down to make notice of. Um, but as I give you the overview of each chapter, I want to give you some details about Samuel and uh, what kind of set Samuel apart uh, and some things that, that we should look at and then ultimately how he is a type that um, points us to Christ. So uh, chapter one, as um, Jesse explained this morning in intercessory prayer, we have Hannah, this godly woman who is barren and she's teased and she's ridiculed and she is heartbroken. And she cries out to the Lord day after day, year after year. And the Lord answers her. And she gives birth to a child, and she devotes this child to the Lord. And I want you to see the details that are ascribed to Samuel in chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Or excuse me, beginning in verse 21. Um, her husband, um, Alkana, is uh, going up to offer the yearly sacrifice and, and pay his vows. But she doesn't for a very important reason. Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. That is a godly mother right there who desires that for her son. Um, later on in the chapter, where when she finally does give birth, here's what she says, verse 27, for this child I, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And so then we get into chapter 2, our corporate reading from earlier, uh, this beautiful prayer. Where interestingly, um, I don't know if you noticed, but she prays prophetically for a king. There is no king. But her son is to be the one who anoints kings. Look at the end of her prayer. Um, picking up in, um, yeah, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord's will judge the end of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Isn't that incredible how this, this mother prays for the one who will be anointed as king? And it is her son who will be the one who will anoint it, him. Um, 
So this uh, Samuel, he serves the Lord in the presence of Eli, looking at uh, verse 11. And Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministered to in the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So Eli is a priest and a judge. Um, and we get more details as this chapter goes on. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. He has priestly garments as a boy. Going on to uh, verse 21. And now, um, I'm skipping around in my own notes here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we are skipping down to verse 21. Here's what I'm doing. So, this boy is being trained up to be a judge. He's got priestly garments on. But this is kind of interesting because uh, Eli has two sons already. He has two grown sons. And so, his sons are supposed to be priests and judges after him. And so there's this contrast going on in chapter 2 between Samuel and his sons. Now picking up in verse 1, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Samuel is growing in godliness. But what's going on with the sons of Eli here? Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. And how they lay with the women uh, who were who are serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That means exactly what you think it means. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, it is, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. But look at the next verse. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with men. These two are set in stark contrast to one another. That language of, two, of um, verse 26 should be familiar with us. The exact same phrase is spoken of of Christ in Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. Samuel is prefiguring the great judge that is to come. So chapter 3, we get to see more of uh, Samuel's character. Uh, this is important. This is going to come into play later on. Let's pick up at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And so the Lord had uh, stopped speaking to his uh, people, but this is being set up here that there's something different about Samuel. And we'll see that in just a moment. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Remember that detail for later. Um, and so what will transpire is that the Lord calls to Samuel four times. He gives him his first prophecy as a young man, and his first prophecy is against his master, Eli and his wicked sons. Um, I want to pick up at the end of the chapter, verse 19. Uh, we'll get to the prophecy again later as well. I want you to get the uh, picture here. Notice everything about Samuel is a man who is good and, and righteous. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. That means he has a very effective ministry. He didn't say anything useless, and, and uh, the words hit their targets. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord re revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. All right, so we have clearly solidified Samuel's the guy. Um, this is being built up. And it seems kind of weird if you're reading this. Chapters 4 through 6 have nothing to say about Samuel. Chapters 4 through 6 begin to exclusively focus on the ark. Why is, this, why is this important? Remember what the ark is. The ark is, is known for God's presence. Um, where, where God dwells on top of the ark, there's this, this mercy seat where sacrifices for sin are. Um, this is something you do not take lightly. If you reach out and touch it, you will die. If you look at it unrighteously, you will die. The ark is synonymous with God amongst his people. So as God is, uh, look to this scene over here where God is uh, showing us what's going on with his ark. So in, in chapter 4, the Israelites in their own strength go out against the uh, Philistines and they're defeated. 
and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. Um, if you're an Israelite reader and you hear and you know that the Ark, where God himself dwells, where our sacrifices are given before him is captured and given to our enemies, this is horrible. This is, this is dreadful. And the Ark of the Covenant uh, remains with the Philistines for some time, but here's um, also what, what happens in this chapter. Eli's wicked sons die. The prophecy that came to Samuel, um, Hophni and Phinehas are, are, are dead. And there's some funny little details in here. Um, Eli apparently is about as diligent with his health as he is with his parenting because he's pretty overweight. And in hearing the news of his sons dying, he falls back over and crushes his own head by his, by his weight. Um, and that's how he dies, uh, 98 years old, judging for 40 years. We'll get more to that at the end. Um, so, chapter 5. Now the ark is brought into this place called Ashdod, and they were afflicted greatly. The, the Philistines did not have a good time with, with, with the ark because God is punishing them for even possessing it. Um, and there's, again, there, there's, there's a lot of these little uh, comical details. And so this is a great one to read with, with your kids because when you get into chapter 5, 1 through 5, um, the uh, ark is put in the temple of this god Dagon. And uh, Dagon is such a powerful and magnificent God that every time he is put, the ark is put before him, and Dagon's just a statue, by the way. Um, every time the ark is put before him, Dagon falls down on his face in worship. And the people have to keep setting their God back up because their, their God keeps falling down before the ark. And finally, the, the, the final time, he smashes into, into all of these, these pieces, never to be put back again. I love it. Um, and so at, after that, the Philistines treat the ark like a hot potato. Like, I don't want it. You take it. I don't want it. You take it. And eventually in chapter six, they send the ark back. Uh, and inside it, they, they, they give a gold guilt offering, which is another funny little tale. So I encourage you to read chapter six. I'll let you read that on your own. But here's what I want to show you in chapter six, bringing this all full circle. Chapter six, verse 19. I want you to see how holy the Lord is and how holy the ark is. These are Israelites. The ark is coming back to the people of Israel. Chapter 6, verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And when the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. That is to ring in our ears for the rest of this book and the rest of this sermon. Who is able to stand before the Lord and is a holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And so the ark comes back. But it's interesting. Do you remember chapter 3? Do you remember where Samuel slept? Samuel slept. Chapter 3, verse 3. With the ark, Samuel sleeps like a baby in the presence of God. But the men who look on it without reason, they are, they are killed immediately. So this is a beautiful picture of God and his servant and how Samuel has no fear to approach the Lord because he is called by the Lord. All right, so now we've caught back up. Um, and in chapter 7, we're back to Samuel. Israel has no one worthy to stand before the Lord. Um, he is fully established as their uh, judge. The Israel defeats the Philistines and subdues them under Samuel. And so now I want to read a little bit in, in uh, chapter 7. And um, we're going to see how the ministry of Samuel points us to Christ, the great judge who will come after. So this is uh, Samuel chapter 7. I want to read 3 through seven, 17. Yep. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. 
And when the people of Israel heard that they, they heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, uh, our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cries out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew back or drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound the day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Kaar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Saul judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went out on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to God. So jam-packed. Um, I just want, to, want you to notice some, some things on how Samuel is a type for us. First thing, in verse 3, the first quality of a righteous judge, call the people to repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Cast all the other gods apart from you. Worship the Lord only. Serve the Lord only. Be faithful. Obey him. Like the righteous judge who was to come, Mark Chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus begins his ministry with these words. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Righteous men of God always are proclaiming, turn from this. Die to your old self. Die to these idols. And turn to the Lord and serve him only. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and Satan comes to him, Luke 4, 8. Here's how he responds to one of Satan's temptations. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is a direct quotation from Samuel here in his address to the people. Jesus is calling back to the words of Samuel and using them as a weapon against Satan. Um, he goes on here. Uh, the, after his call, the people fast, and uh, they recognize their own sin. They are called to repentance. And then um, what does Samuel do? Verse 8. The people of Israel are fearful. This is, goes hand in hand with, with, with ministry. When you're fearful, they ask for help. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Here's what a godly judge does. He intercedes for the people. And what also does he do? Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. This was the job of the priests, the judges in the Old Testament, to intercede for the people, to offer sacrifices on their behalf. And when the, the, the men of God humble themselves and intercede for the people and offer a sacrifice, God hears and answered prayers. This is what the priests of the old covenant did. But we have a new covenant. Because our intercessor is also our mediator, is also our sacrifice. And we know God hears him because he is God. Because the Son is our sacrifice. Let's first look at intercession. John 17, um, what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, as Noe said last week, this is the Lord's prayer. This is how Jesus on earth spoke to the Father. He begins with glory. Father, be glorified. Be glorified in your Son. And be glorified in those with whom you have given eternal life, the knowledge of me. I keep them in the world as your ambassadors to bring my message to the nation. So he, he intercedes for Israel, for his, um, for his uh, apostles, uh, those who uh, would, would turn to Christ in the land of Israel. But he also intercedes for those 
who are further off. Verse 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in my name through their word. Guess who that is, brothers and sisters? We are believing. We have their word, the words of the apostles, in our hands. So Jesus was interceding for us the night before he went to the cross. And what does he say? That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them. That's incredible. That is Jesus' prayer for us, our unity to be in him, to be a witness to the world, and to share in his glory. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, me may be with me where I am. He prays for the day that we'll be united with him. Praise God for that. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is how our judge, our intercessor, our mediator has prayed for us. You think the Father answers his prayers? Absolutely. This is why we pray in his name. Pray to Mary, you're a fool. We have the Son of God who goes before us as an intercessor. We pray in his name because this prayer is still being lived out every day in the life of his people. Our intercessor is also our mediator. Offerings make mediation possible. You can't go before a holy God if you are covered in sin. This is why they needed an ark. This is why they needed a mercy seat. Blood had to be shed. It was either your blood or the blood of an animal. So Samuel, as a good judge, takes a young lamb, sheds his blood upon the mercy seat. Our mediator becomes the lamb himself to become our perpetual mediator. We're familiar with this in um, Isaiah 53, prophesying the suffering servant, the one who would, who would be to come. Isaiah 53, verse 10 through 13. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when the soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because... He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus' once for all sacrifice is the mediation that makes all of the Christian life and all of eternity possible. This is Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, speaking of the tabernacle here, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places where the ark is, not by the means of blood or goats or cows, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. But if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a hefter sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify the consciences uh, from dead works to serve the living God. Samuel gave us a glimpse of what it means to serve God, to have an intercessor, to have a mediator, to have a sacrifice. And Christ gives it to us in fullness. He makes it possible for us to serve God. And I don't know if you caught this, but you know what happens after the sacrifice Immediately after this, immediately with the sacrifice, the enemy is defeated. The Philistines are destroyed, and never again did the Philistines come into Israel. Because of the offering, because of the sacrifice, their enemies are defeated and they are safe from harm. 
What a beautiful gospel picture right here in 1 Samuel 7. He goes on in verse 12. He takes a stone, an Ebenezer, a reminder stone that the Lord has helped us. Israel needed a reminder of the Lord's help because they were quick to forget. We need a reminder of the Lord's help. But the Lord has given us something so much better than a stone. He has written on our hearts. In the new covenant, he has written on our hearts the law of God. And so that we wouldn't forget, he gave us his spirit as a reminder. It is the spirit's job to continually reminder, remind us much greater than a stone. John 14, John 14, 25 through 27. These things I have spoken to you while still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We have a greater reminder, brothers and sisters. We have a rock in Christ Jesus. We have a stone of remembrance written on our hearts. It is the spirit who gives witness and reminder that our great judge is our intercessor, our mediator, and our sacrifice. And so finally, in chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, he lives to serve the Lord. He's obedient for all of his days. He um, judges the, the people, and he builds an altar. Is, that, is there no greater way to point to our Savior, who all the days of his life was without sin? Serve the Lord perfectly in every place, now and forevermore. He is the judge of the world he judges the nations with equity in every place you can go before him in every place in spirit and truth you can worship him because no more altars are needed because he was the final sacrifice on the altar so every time we pray to the lord our sweet incense goes up before him as if it were on the altar because it is and so for the saints, we do not fear Christ as judge. We celebrate him because our judge is good. Our judge is righteous. Our judge is true. This was the message of the apostles. This is the gospel that Peter preached in Acts chapter 10. Um, I love Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10, but this is indicative of all the sermons in Acts. And so when Peter walks into the house of the Gentiles, he recounts the whole uh, life and ministry of Christ. But he ends with him being the judge of the earth. I want to just read all of this because it's so rich. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets, including Samuel, bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Take comfort, brothers and sisters. Because if he stands in your place, if you bear his name, your sins are forgiven. Your, his righteousness is accounted to your account. He has made you blameless before God because he has taken all of your sins, all of your transgressions. He is the final sacrifice. And we take comfort with him as judge. Because even as he was appointed by the Father before the foundation of the earth to come and be our substitute, to come and be our mediator, he has decided before the foundation of the world, he will save his people. He knows us by name. He knew us before we were born. He made provision for us before anything ever happened. Election shouldn't concern us and it shouldn't surprise us. It should comfort us. That is how deep and great God's love for his people is. This decision 
that, this, that our judge made before the foundation of the world, it was solidified and completed on the cross and in his subsequent resurrection. That the price would be paid, that the people would be preserved. And so we don't need to make further sacrifices. Stop trying to make sacrifices by your works and by your efforts and by your uh, pleading. Look to Christ, the final sacrifice. We must only believe. But as for you in this room who do not have a mediator, but as for you in this room who do not repent, as for you in this room who serve everything but the Lord, all of your sinful desires, all of the gods of the world, if you do not bow down in repentance and faith, what will he decide? What will his judgment be on you? His righteous judgment will be against you. So Jesus tells us in John chapter 12 that in his first coming, he came to judge the world. Excuse me, not to judge the world. His first coming had a purpose. His first coming had a purpose to proclaim the salvation of the Lord. John chapter 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, that so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world in his incarnation to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. There is a day when he's coming back. You will be judged by the word of God. You will be judged by what Jesus proclaimed. Because ultimately, Jesus is judging on his father's behalf. Verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus came to say, repent and believe. Because there is life in me, but there is judgment without me. And there is a day coming when judgment is, is coming. That's Jesus' first coming. That's Jesus riding on a donkey in his first coming to lay down his life to save the world. Jesus is coming again. And it's not a donkey, it's a war horse. Revelation 19. If you are lulled to sleep by the partial pictures of Jesus meek and lowly, that was for a time, that was for a purpose. But the next time any of us will see him, the next time he returns is as a triumphant riding king and judge. Verse 11 of Revelation 19, then I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war against his enemies. His eyes are like the flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread down the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is our judge. And that is how he will return to judge. So brothers, you either celebrate him. Brothers and sisters, we celebrate him. But if you don't, you will fall before him. So I want to get to a couple practical things. When reading Old Testament narrative, we must first understand the context, the history, um, so that we can see how, we, how it's redemptively fulfilled in Christ. So then we can apply it to ourselves. So let's look at a couple lessons in, in uh, two main areas. Number one, the providence of God. Uh, I want to keep coming back to this like we did in Ruth. Even in the darkest times, the Lord is always working to save a people for himself. From Moses to Samuel to Christ, we can trust that God is a righteous judge. He makes perfect decisions, and his plan is without error. And in his sovereign acts over man, he always is preserving a righteous remnant. So when we read the Old Testament, remember 
Christ our king, Christ our judge. Every time we read the Old Testament and we see how Eli failed and Samuel couldn't complete it and David failed and Solomon failed, we look to our perfect prophet, priest, king, our perfect judge. And in the leaders in our own churches, in our own countries, in our own cities, when they fail, we, that's why we don't put our trust in men. We put our trust in God. And to make sure that it would happen, God himself took on flesh and did it for us. Our leaders are far from perfect, but we have one leader, one judge who reigns over all the nations with equity and justice and faithfulness and righteousness. And not only is he judging from afar, but he is redeeming intimately a bride and people for himself. So that's the sovereignty of God. Now here's the response of his people. Uh, I want to begin uh, personally and then broadly before we go to the table. The response of his people when we read an account like this is one of diligence. Diligence, I will tell you, begins in the home. And so as he is raising a people from himself, there's a lot of less people for himself. There's a lot of lessons we can learn here. He is preparing godly men and encouraging and using godly women like Ruth and Hannah. And so I want to begin with godly mothers. Godly mothers play a primary role in the life of godly young men and women. In the role of raising up God's people. This begins in our home. So mothers do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in praying for your children. Do not grow weary in raising them up and devoting them to the Lord. Knowing that he hears your prayers and that he will use your, your, your faithfulness. Um, and Hannah is a perfect example of this. It's no surprise why half the young ladies at RBC are named Hannah. Um, she's, <laughs> she's, she's a great example of a faithful mom who knows that her child is not her own. She has him for a time and she devotes him to the Lord and trusts the Lord to be good to use him for, her, for his purposes. Likewise, fathers, your guidance and your discipline make all the difference in your child's life. Do not neglect it. Here's where I want to go back to our text. Because as we look to the example of Eli, he is at one hand a horrible biological father. But a great example of a spiritual father. Um, let's go back to chapter 2. I want, I want you to see, because it wasn't just arbitrarily that the Lord killed his sons, and it wasn't arbitrarily that Eli died right after the death of his sons. In chapter 2, look at this. Uh, we, we, we read this earlier. Uh, Eli was very old. He kept hearing all the things that his sons were, were, were doing. They were uh, wicked. Um, and look at, at uh, chapter 3. So on one hand, he's very aware of the wicked deeds of his sons. And then the word of the Lord comes to a Samuel against him. Uh, chapter 3, verse 10, and the Lord came and stood and, uh, and calling at, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which two ears of everyone will hear it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Notice, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. His sons need to be knocked upside the head. And Eli knew about it and he did not restrain them. So we got to talk a little bit about that. There is a term in our day called gentle parenting. Um, it's not new. Eli was practicing it back then. The tenets of gentle parenting are empathy, respect, understanding, and boundaries. Treating your two-year-old like they're an adult with all the faculties. I get a lot of thumbs up in the back. Uh, Wendy, you're going to love the next five minutes, I promise you. Um, 
This is a problem. This was a problem for Eli. What was the problem? He knew of the wickedness of his sons and he did nothing to restrain it. Parents, rule number one, do not forget total depravity. Your adorable little sinners do not have the capacity to please God. They do not have the capacity to make adult decisions. This is causing consequences in people's lives and people's homes. We have to deal with it in the church often. You are entrusted with these children because they need direction and discipline. If you don't, they will grow up like Finney, uh, what's his name? Uh, Phineas and uh, Hophni. They're children. They are unwise and immature by nature. That's how they're born. Don't expect to be able to reason with them and debate with them and plead with them to act like an adult, to get on the same page with you. They don't have to. It's your page. You're, you decide what page they're on. Amen. And so there's a reason why uh, there are so many parents in our parenting class, and I'm glad there is. This is one of the rare times where a class starts and ends uh, with the same attendance. And if you talk to the parents in that class, like how well, how much they've been encouraged, and uh, Michael and Wendy Holland have done a great job in that. But what a great reminder again and again and again of the responsibility given to parents and the consequences when parents don't parent. Look to Eli, because I guarantee you, your children are going to look more like Hophni and Phineas than, than, than Samuel. If you get a little Samuel, praise the Lord. Children who just sleep at the foot of the ark peacefully. Praise God. Um, but there's a lot more wretches out there, I guarantee you. And so I just want to encourage you, parents, if you do not discipline and train your children, there will be consequences for you and them. You do not want the Lord to discipline your, your children like he did to Eli's. They are equal in the image of God by all means. They are wonderful little creations, but that's it. In every other way, they are underneath your authority. You are the judge in their lives. Your children need you to decide for them like Israel needed judges to decide for them because they were too immature and fickle to do it for themselves. Be the judge in your child's life because they're not able to do it on their own. And children, oh, um, here's where Samuel was a good example. Now at the end of chapter uh, three, Samuel, verse 15, Samuel lay, uh, or excuse me, Eli was a good example. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called to Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and he had nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems to be good to him. It's the wisest thing Samuel says. He failed with his sons, but he did not fail with Samuel. And what did he do? He taught him to listen to the word of the Lord and obey him. That is what spiritual parenting is all about. And so, children, if you are here this morning, your parents love you enough to bring you to hear the word of God and sing the praises of God and hear the prayers and sit next to adults taking notes so you can learn good disciplines. Praise God for faithful mothers and fathers. And if you were not blessed enough to have believing parents who raised you in the fear and admonition of the Lord, praise God for spiritual mothers and fathers, older saints who walked alongside us, prayed for us, cared for us, and taught us how to listen to and obey the word of God. So finally, as we approach the table, there's a, I want to call us to confidence. Because of Christ, we can now approach the Lord. We can be at home by the Ark of the Covenant as Samuel was. We can go before him and not die. Because in Christ, the veil has been torn. We have access to the great throne of grace. Because of the blood of our lamb has been sprinkled on the mercy seat. We don't have to cower in fear. We, we can just come simply in love. Knowing that our God has made intercession 
mediation, and sacrifice once for all on our behalf. And brothers and sisters, when you approach this table, and this is for brothers and sisters, remember, you're not approaching on your own merit or if you're the end of your life is in, is in doubt or in flux. Once for all, Christ's sacrifice. This is his royal table as our king, our priest, our prophet, our judge. And if you are his, come, knowing that he has made sacrifice for you and he has defeated your foes like he defeated the Philistines. I'll give you a moment to prepare your hearts and then Pastor Jesse will direct us.